Before we begin our message today, I would ask that you say a prayer because we have such a great deal of material that we want to consider today. I don't want us to get lost in the details, and I want the message that we have intentional, uh, this intentional message, what we intend to say to you rather, to be very clear. I would also ask that you pray for me in a special way because last night about uh, 9.30 or so, I had one of these migraines that I have from time to time, and it starts with a hole in my vision. I'm outside looking for an extension cord to uh, wrap it all together, and I can't see the end of it because when you wrap it up the right way where you make little loops, you have to connect the ends, and I, I can't see it. And I suddenly realize there's a big hole in my vision. I'm like, great, I know what this means. So then it grows into the big, curvy, zigzaggy rainbow shape. And the last thing that happens when I have that happen to me is that I lose the ability to speak, and sometimes I say the wrong words. You know, I do that anyway, sometimes. I've, I have a whole list of blunders that I've made from the pulpit unintentionally, like Jonah's in the belly's well, and, you know, you ask not because you have not, and things such as that. I have a greatest hits list. Uh, so please pray because there might be portions of the message today, being that recent from a migraine, that <laughs> I can't say sentences correctly. And if that happens, just understand, bless his heart, bless his heart. At least it happened last night instead of right now, so he can at least read the text. My message is entitled, An Unlikely Hero, and will be taken from the book of Judges, chapters 6 and 7. And so if you want to turn with us this morning, turn to the book of Judges, chapter 6 and 7. As we said, as we asked you to pray for us today, it's impossible to go through every detail of two chapters of Scripture in one 50-minute sermon. Now, we could give you every detail of this, but we would probably speak through lunch into the afternoon service, and while all things are lawful, not all things are expedient, there are parts of this that we will have to summarize, and some details of this that we will have to skip over, but there are some great comforting, encouraging, and also convicting points that we want to present to you from the story of, again, as we said, a very unlikely hero that's found in Judges chapter 6 and 7. We want to consider today one of the judges of the Old Testament, a man named Gideon. And when I say that Gideon is an unlikely hero, now I believe this is the third time we've used that word today, I mean that, just to be clear with you, Gideon was an uncertain man, he was a fearful man, and despite that, God used him to deliver, the word that we read here is save, in a temporal sense, to save Israel from their enemies that oppressed them in his world at that day. As we introduce this character to you today. This word Gideon means one who cuts to pieces, one who cuts into pieces. At this time in Israel's history, to give you the backstory and a little bit of the context, you know this is early in the New Testament, directly before the book of Judges, you have the book of Joshua, and before the book of Joshua, you have the Pentateuch or the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament that were written by Moses. Moses dies in the 
end of Deuteronomy, and God places this faithful man who's now in his 80s, a man named Joshua, in charge of Israel. Moses died with his natural strength. His sight had not abated. His sight was just as strong as it ever had been. His physical presence was strong. God preserved him all through his life. Joshua comes near to the end of his life, and he begins to As he says, it is going to happen to me according to the course of this world. I'm passing away. I'm old. I'm now going to die. Up until this time, God has led them from Egyptian deliverance, from the Exodus on, under these two individuals, Moses and Joshua. They were very strong, central figures in the nation of Israel. They very much led them and... You could consider them a form of a ruler in that they judged and they decreed. If they said by the word of the Lord that one needed to be executed, that person would be executed. They very much had the power of the sword among Israel. As these two men, one after the other, Moses and Joshua, Joshua passes away and it leaves this great void in the nation of Israel. This is prior to Israel begging and asking for a king to be like the other nations. Now, following this book of Judges, when you get into 1 and 2 Samuel, you'll know that Israel asks for a king. God gives them a king, a man named King Saul. He was a head and shoulders taller than everyone else. And his kingship, his authority, ended up being one that was, for lack of a better term, quite the train wreck. And you know, after that, God places David in the position of king over the nation of Israel. This is a very distinct period, a very unique period in Israel's history, the book of Judges, because it's after they had this central leading figure, but before they had a different type of central leading figure, a king. And it was in this period that Israel was governed by the judges, governed by, in a sense, ruled by the judges in that The judges would determine if there was a case that was to be tried, if there was a problem that needed to be sorted out. These judges would give the answer to that. And at the same time, as we'll see, these judges also were used by God to deliver Israel as they would wield the military force of the nation of Israel to Israel's deliverance. It came under the authority of these judges. By the way, you sisters, and we're so very thankful to have the baptism of one of our younger sisters today, if you read the early chapters of the book of Judges, you find some, what my mother used to love to refer to Lydia as, a mighty warrior woman. You find mighty warrior women early in the book of Judges. You've got Deborah, who was one of these types of people. She was a prophetess. She prophesied, in a sense, and... She did lead them to victory. There was another woman in Israel that, as one of these generals was running, this person in command of a military was running, she says, come into my tent, come into my tent, lay down and rest, I'll hide you. And he falls asleep after she gives him milk to drink. She takes a nail and a hammer, she drives it through his head and connects his head with the ground. And I believe that man's name was Simeon. And so there are some mighty warrior women early in the book of Judges. You you sisters, check that out, read that, and find some encouragement in the Lord. Here in Judges 6 and 7, we read a case of a very uncertain man. 
He wasn't cowardly, but at the same time, he wasn't necessarily brave. He was very, very fearful. And I think we'll see that displayed over and over in his interactions with the Lord and the angel of the Lord, his asking God for signs, his uncertainty that God had really, 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 and you have to use that three times because he asked him for signs three times, really, 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 wants, God wants him to go and do that which God has commanded for him to do. Again, this word Gideon means one who cuts to pieces. He would get another name at the end of Judges chapter 6, a name that's given to him because of some of the things that he did, some reforms, if you will, in this nation as he begins to seek repentance on a national level. Gideon was the fifth judge in this period of judges in this century in Israel's history. He was the son of Joash of the tribe of Manasseh. Now, a lot of times we say Manasseh, but according to the, the Cambridge pronunciation of that word as it is historically, it's actually Manasseh, Manasseh. Whichever way you want to pronounce that, he is of that particular tribe. The main foes of Israel in this day were the Midianites and the Amalekites. Now, that's interesting in a couple of ways because both of these different types of ites, both of these different nations, actually, if you go back far enough in history, were kinfolks to the nation of Israel. The Midianites were the offspring of Midian. Midian was one of the children that Abraham had with another woman after Sarah died. You remember when Sarah dies, Abraham has other children. He takes other wives and he has concubines and he has children with them. One of these children is a man named Midian. And so the Midianites are the offspring of this particular child of Abraham. Now, what should their cousins, as it were, be doing with them in this day? They should be helping them. They should be encouraging them. They should repent and walk along with them and serve the God of Abraham because Abraham is their father as well, and yet they were not. These Midianites were idolaters. The other is the Amalekites. Amalek was a grandson of Esau. Now, how would they be related, Israel, to the descendants of a grandson of Esau? You remember that Israel, the man, was originally Jacob the man. His name was changed from Jacob to Israel. Jacob's brother, what was his name? Esau. And so Amalek is a grandchild of Esau. These are literally long-distance cousins from the nation of Israel, and they are doing war with them. They are oppressing them, and it's, it's quite the shame. At this point, they are being afflicted by them. And this will be very clear as we begin to read into the early parts of chapter 6. Now, you notice chapter 6 and verse 1, "...the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord delivered them into the hands of Midian seven years. And the hand of Midian prevailed against Israel, because, the Midianites, because of the Midianites, the children of Israel made them the dens which are in the mountains and caves and strongholds." In other words, Israel, because they were afflicted by Midian, had to go hide in caves... They had to live in caves and the clefts of the rock. They're doing all they can to keep themselves safe. They're hiding from the Midianites in the caves and the dens of the earth and the mountains. So they, in a sense, have driven them off into exile. And 
They're afflicting them. They're stealing from them. They're taking things from them. And this is a great trouble in Israel. As we think about the bondage that Israel is experiencing right now, the first thing that we want to ask is why? Why is Israel in bondage? This is a question that's going to come up in this chapter. And there are parallels in Israel's predicament that we can look at in our world today, in our country, and especially among our churches. Why is it not with us, as we'll see in a moment, the way that it used to be with some of God's people, the way that it could be with us today? Look at verse 1 of chapter 6. Why is Israel in bondage to the Midianites and the Amalekites? The children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. It isn't that God changed. It's that Israel has sinned. We find this pattern all through the book of Judges. They are given God's blessing, but then they fall into sin, and then they're taken into bondage, and then they begin to call out to God, and God sends a judge to deliver them, and they repent, and they are freed, and then they fall into sin, and then God sends them into bondage. And then they cry out in bondage, and God sends a judge. And the judge causes repentance, and the judge leads them out of captivity. And they fall into sin. And it happens over and over and over in the history of the nation of Israel. Now, there's this fad idea, and this is something I want to give you as we begin our thoughts today. There's this fad idea among conservative evangelicals that... Whatever you're reading in the Old Testament, whatever you're reading in the New Testament, don't make it about you. And I think that the term was narcissus, you know, exegesis is when you explain Scripture. Eisegesis is when you read your ideas into Scripture. Narcissus is when you're a narcissist and make Scripture about you. Well, that's true to an extent, but I want you to understand that, number one, what was written before is written for our learning. That means that I can read this and learn a lesson for today. Number two, we are to cast off every weight and the sin which does so easily beset us by observing the cloud of witnesses. What is the cloud of witnesses? I knew an engineer one time who tried to overthink everything, and he said, we view time as linear, but... In reality, it's all happening at once in different times at the same space. And so the cloud of witnesses is all the people still... What? You know, don't overthink that. What does that mean, cloud of witnesses? It means all the people in the Bible that overcame by faith, because it's literally a chapter that follows... Paul wrote that in a chapter following a chapter where he lists one after another of God's children that overcame adversity by faith. And so the cloud of witnesses are all of these children of God that you can read about throughout the Word of God who overcame obstacles in this world by the faith that Christ had authored and finished within them. And so we, sure, this isn't about us, this is about Jesus, but We handicap God's people if we tell them there's nothing you can learn about Gideon, about yourself through the life of Gideon, or there's nothing you can learn for your life through studying David. 
Now, we can learn through reading these examples and these lessons. Now, think about that cyclical pattern. I'm going to demonstrate it for you. And I want you to just think about your own life. Is it not this way in your own individual life? A pattern of forsaking God, being chastened of God, calling out to God, being restored by God, and then the next thing you know, here comes the sin issue in your life again, and the pattern begins to repeat itself. I'm thinking of number 25 in our hymnal, one of the lyrics of that hymn, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. Is that not the case with you? Certainly the case with me so many times. Israel's history is for our learning, and it points to Christ because it's all about Christ, but we're the people of Christ. And so we find instruction as we learn their story. Judges 2.11. Let's notice a few of these statements. The children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and served Balaam. They forsook the Lord God of their fathers, which brought them out of the land of Egypt. They followed other gods. What was their sin? Idolatry. They followed other gods of the gods of the people, which were round about them and bowed themselves bowed themselves unto them and provoked the Lord to anger. They forsook the Lord and served Baal and Ashtaroth. So what happens? Verse 14, the angel of the Lord was hot against Israel. He delivered them into the hands of the spoilers that spoiled them, sold them into their hands of their enemies round about so they could not any longer stand before their enemies. What happens? Well, you have sin and then you have judgment. Judges 2 and verse 20, the anger, uh, the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel, and he said, because that this people has transgressed my covenant, which I commanded their fathers and have not hearkened unto my voice, I also will not henceforth drive out any of, from before them of the nations which Joshua left when he died. Because they've offended me, I'm not going to totally eradicate the ites from the land. I'm not going to drive them out. They're going to be problematic for them. Chapter 3 and verse 8. Therefore the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel, and he sold them. Verse 9. The children of Israel cried unto the Lord, the Lord raised a deliverer. There you have it in just a couple of verses. This pattern that happened over and over and over in the history of the nation of Israel. Chapter 3 and verse 12. The children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. By the way, evil again in the sight of the Lord. The Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel because they had done evil in the sight of the Lord. He gathered unto him the children of Ammon and Amalek and went and smote Israel and possessed possessed the cities of the palm trees. They served him 18 years. Now, we kind of think about this as, well, that was about a week, right? You read this and it, it just hits it and it moves on. So you think a lot of these captivities and these Times when they enslaved them. That's a week, it's a couple of weeks, maybe it's a month. Eighteen years of Israel's history in the Judges was spent in these few verses serving this other king. This happened over and over again. And sometimes they tarried for just a period of years. Sometimes it was many years. Imagine spending 18 years of your life in servitude to a wicked pagan king. 
You know, if you live 80 years old, that's nearly a quarter of your life. Some of you here haven't lived 18 years. Some of you are just over 18 years. You, you might look back and think 18 years is most of my life. 18 years isn't half of my life. It used to be. It won't ever be again. 18 years. Chapter 4 and verse 1. The children of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord when Ehud was dead. The Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, that reigned in Hazor, the captain of whose host was Sisera, which dwelt in Herosheth of the Gentiles. Over and over, it happens after this, but we're just getting you up to the point where we are in the book of Judges. You have sin followed by bondage, followed by repentance, followed by deliverance, followed by sin. And I think that the lesson that God is just telling us here, because we learn from this, is that we are fallen people. And when we begin to look at the unlikely hero of today's story, God is always the hero, but God uses this man. He uses a very unlikely man for deliverance. In the middle of a broken people that is so prone to wander from the presence of the Lord, God raises up a man who is the last person you would think to be a military commander, bold and brave. You know, we think about men like Stonewall Jackson, who, who stood like a stone wall in the midst of combat. Now, he did that because he was a fatalist, and he was an absoluter, and he believed he couldn't die before his time, and he was killed by friendly fire. There might be a lesson in that. But we think about the bravery of a man like that. That's not this man Gideon. It's not Gideon at all. Gideon is, well, he's afraid. He's not like Samson. Oh, Samson, one of the judges, he, he goes and he slaughters people with a jawbone. There's a couple of different men in here that would go slaughter multiple, multiple people, not Gideon. Gideon is more of a fraidy cat. As we continue looking into the context of this, not only was this a cyclical pattern, but God left certain of these ites in the land to prove them. Now, he didn't drive them all out because of their issues, which we already read to you. But chapter 3 and verse 1 says, These are the nations which the Lord left to prove Israel by them, even the many of Israel as had not known all the wars of Canaan, only that the generations of the Israel might know to teach them war, at the least, such as before knew nothing thereof. And so God says, I'm leaving some of these people here, so you will be proved. Will you obey my word? Will you go on with them? And to teach them war. Because there are some of them that have never known a battle, and life was going to be difficult. In a sense, some of this adversity had been tolerated to strengthen them and train them. Some adversity had been permitted to train them. There were ites that were left because God would prove them and that they might know war. They were always going to have the threat of war. And they didn't need to go into Canaan's land and get soft and get weak, get complacent, because then if a military comes against them, how are they going to fight? Now, God gave them power through His might, but at the same time, God wanted them ready.
Judges chapter 2, verses 16 through 19. Listen to this note. Nevertheless, the, Lord's, uh, the Lord raised up judges which delivered them out of the hand of those that spoiled them. And yet they would not hearken unto their judges, but they went a-whoring after other gods and bowed themselves unto them. They turned quickly out of the way which was their father's or which their fathers walked in, obeying the commandments of the Lord, but they did not so. And when the Lord raised them up judges, then the Lord was with the judge and delivered them out of the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For it repented the Lord because of their groanings by reason of them that oppressed them and vexed them. came to pass when the judge was dead. Listen to this. This gives you some information about the cycle of this, that they returned and corrupted themselves more than their fathers in following other gods to serve them and to bow down unto them. They cease not from their own doings nor from their stubborn way. So God raises up a judge to deliver them out of the bondage that they place themselves in. And when that judge dies, the cycle repeats itself. You have more information about the cycle. There's a biblical principle where the shepherd is smitten the sheep will scatter. When you take away the Moses who's leading things, the people begin to get into sin. When you take about, uh, away the Joshua that's leading them and very pointedly commanding them and judging among, among them, the sheep begin to scatter and get into all kinds of mischief. And so God raises a judge. He delivers them. He leads them. The judge dies. The people turn to sin. They find themselves in bondage. God raises up another judge. This gives some information about the various afflictions that they would experience. There's a statement that I want to look at next in Judges chapter 6. These are the words of Gideon as he speaks with the angel of the Lord. I told you that part of what we had to say today had a great correlation or parallel with our country, any country, the world in general, but especially, chiefly, primarily, the church. Gideon is speaking to the angel of the Lord in Judges 6.13. And this statement really hit home with me this week. Oh, my Lord, if the Lord be with us, why then is all this befallen us? And where be all his miracles which our fathers told us of, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and delivered us into the hands of the Midianites? Think on that question for a minute. Certainly we could apply that to just the spiritual condition of our country today. Lord, where is your moving among the people of this country? Why is this place not a moral land that it at least was more so of in previous generations? You could make that parallel. But remember, America is not Israel. God didn't come to set up another physical nation. God came to establish a church. What group of people in the world parallels the nation of Israel in today's time? The church of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
As you read through church history, one thing that you see very clearly is God's hand in delivering them, working among them, causing great movements among them, and outpouring one after another of the Holy Spirit as God raises up a man to preach and proclaim His gospel. There is a revival in that place. People hear the Word. They confess their sins. They come into the house of God. They worship Christ in spirit and in truth. I'm not talking about fake Christianity. I'm not talking about American cotton candy. I'm not talking about fluff. Pardon me. I'm talking about a real movement of the Spirit of God among people. Now, how do you know when that happens? When people hit their knees and weep over their sins is one indication. And they come into the house and they confess their sins and they draw nigh unto God. I'm not talking about when people come into a church and they pack by the thousands because the preacher tells them how God wants them to be happy and rich. It's not what I'm talking about. It's how you win friends and influence people. I'm talking about when God moves among people. When you read that in church history, sometimes in our day when things seem at times more stagnant. Now, I'm thankful for God's blessings here at Flint River Primitive Baptist Church. We're not a huge church. But you know what? God blesses us. He blesses us, I believe, with a fervent worship. He blesses us with new people, with opportunities to preach His Word in this community and abroad. And I am so thankful for that. I believe that in the 15 years that we have been here, we have seen lives changed. We've been through battles. You know, the church is so much like Canaan's land. It has not been some fictitious land of rainbows and lollipops and butterflies and roses the 15 years that I've been here. In fact, the stress of some of the situations, it's my honor and privilege to have taken five to ten years of my life away. In the sense that I'll probably die early to, to serve God in this place. You know that movie, Princess Bride, I just sucked five years of your life away. Tell us, how does it feel? And remember, this is pos- for posterity's sake. There are times in the last 15 years that I just want to go, <laughs> like the protagonist as he's put on the torture machine. But we've experienced what it means to be church here. I believe very much. A few years ago it occurred to me, how do we see God's power in His church? We see it through the impacted lives of those who hear the Word. That's how we experience God's power in the New Testament church. We don't see rivers part like in the Exodus. We don't see an angel come slay 180,000 people in one night. We don't see the handwriting on the wall In Daniel's day, letting them know the Medo-Persians were about to overthrow Babylon and Israel gets to go back. How we experience God's power in the church is through the changing of the lives of God's people as they hear the word over and over and over and they grow. Praise God that we have seen him work in our church. But sometimes we think, I've heard of these great miracles. I've heard of these great revivals. I've heard of these movements where God would bless a man a minister to baptize hundreds of people in just a few short years. Read about Shubal Stearns. Read about some of these American Baptist preachers of the old days, predestinarian preachers. God blessed them to constitute church after church after church, baptism after baptism after baptism. Where are the miracles of the old days? I want that question to latch hold in your mind. 
Because if we're not seeing the miracles of the old days, the problem is not with God. The problem is because God's people need to repent and to seek him the way that they ought to seek him. Got to move along. If God isn't moving among us, why? If God isn't moving among true Christianity, why? I'll leave that open-ended. Enter Gideon, the unlikely deliverer. This is supposed to be one message. I'm going to try to get it done in one day. There came an angel of the Lord and sat under an oak, which was in Ophrah, that pertained unto Joash. His son Gideon threshed wheat by the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. So Gideon is threshing wheat, and he's hiding it. Why is he hiding it? Because the Midianites raid them and take all their stuff, their livestock, their food. They raid them. They take their stuff. So Gideon's threshing it. He's hiding it. The angel said, The Lord is with thee, thou mighty man of valor. The irony. The irony. Because Gideon, at times, was anything but. Now, we have some takeaways from this at the end of the message today, and I really wanted to hit home with you. Sometimes God calls things that are not as if they are. (laughs) And that's language from Paul's writings to the Corinthians. God sometimes calls things that are not as if they are. Thou mighty man of valor. Gideon, God is going to use you to deliver. That's when Gideon asked this question, where are the miracles? The Lord looked upon him and said, Go in this thy might, and thou shalt save Israel from the hand of the Midianites. Have I not sent thee? Have I not sent thee? If God has sent you, that's all you need. If God has sent you, that's all you need. And I can tell you from experience that if God sends you into a situation, you have all that you need to stand and to accomplish that which he has sent you to do. I can tell you that from experience over and over again. Again, we ended last week's message with, If God be for us, who could be against us? Have I not sent thee? This man Gideon, this unlikely deliverer, begins to question and argue a little bit. Now, this isn't the first or the last man that would do this in Scripture. Remember when God talks to Moses and he tells him, you're going to go and deliver Israel from Egypt. Well, what does Moses say? Hey, I stutter. (laughs) I'm not going to go and talk to these kings. I'm a stammering tongue. Well, fine. Send your brother Aaron. He's a good speaker. He'll talk for you. He'll be your mouthpiece. Great. Can't get out of it, Moses. Go do it. Jonah, we studied him in the Minor Prophets recently. He goes the clear other direction than where God told him to go preach. He ended up going where God told him to go preach, too, by the way. So many times, this is the response to God's call to go do something. Listen to what Gideon says. Three points along these lines. And this does demonstrate why he was so unlikely of a deliverer. 615, number one, O my Lord Wherewithal shall or wherewith shall I save Israel? Behold, my family is poor in Manasseh. 
Number one, I'm not fit to do this. I'm just a poor man. Well, God doesn't need your wealth to deliver Israel, Gideon. In fact, so many times God chooses to use someone that has no physical trait or attribute that makes them the logical choice because God exalts himself in doing it. When it comes down to it, you look at it at the end of the day and you say, this had to have been of God because there's no way this would have been based upon this person or this nation's strength. It had to have been of God. Gideon says, Lord, I can't do this. I'm poor. It's just something I can't do. The latter part of verse 15, I come from a poor family. Number two, I'm the least in my father's house. Well, you've really whittled it down there. It sounds like a country song. Not only am I from a poor family, but I'm the least of all of them. (laughs) You're going to send me? I think about David. When God goes and anoints him as king, you've got all these boys that are paraded in front of Samuel, these sons of Jesse. And Samuel's like, none of these are going to do. We've got another one here, certainly. And, well, this is David, but he's out there with the, he's not much to look at. <laughs> you, know, you know, on David, Samuel's like, God doesn't look upon the outside. He looks upon the heart. That man is the man that will be king. Gideon's like, angel, <laughs> number one, I'm poor. My family's poor. Number two, I'm the least of all of them. And you're going to ask me to go deliver this nation? I can't do this. Number three, he was uncertain and fearful. Look at verse 17. If now I have found grace in thy sight, then show me a sign that thou talkest with me. Show me a sign that you talk with me. Talking with you is a sign that I'm talking with you. What do you mean? I suppose what Gideon is saying is if you're really saying the truth, if this is really what needs to happen, then I need to see a sign. In fact, before this was over with, there would be three signs that he would ask for, and God in his mercy would give him the three signs. Let's look at the first of these signs, because I'm going to try to keep this in chronological order. Gideon asked for this sign, and he says, I'm going to bring a present, a gift, I'm going to set it before thee, tarry until thou come again. I will tarry till thou come again. Gideon went in and made ready a kid and unleavened cakes of an ephah of flour. The flesh he put in a basket, put the broth in a pot, and brought it out unto him under the oak and presented it. The angel of the Lord said, take the flesh and the unleavened cakes, lay it them upon this rock and pour out the broth, and he did so. When you read that, it's building up to something you can tell, and you're thinking, is the angel about to eat? Do angels eat? They, they eat manna. Manna's called angel's food. Is this angel going to eat something with Gideon? He says, put it on this rock. The angel of the Lord put the end of his staff that was in his hand and touched the flesh of the unleavened cakes, and there arose up fire out of the rock and consumed the flesh and the unleavened cakes. Then the angel of the Lord departed out of his sight. Give me a sign. Bring me some food. Here's the food. Put it on the rock. Puts it on the rock. Touches it with a staff. The rock bursts into flames and consumes all the food. That's your sign. I'm not going to make the dad joke, here's your sign, but if you were in the 90s, you know what that means. 
Gideon, this is your sign. Here's your sign, Gideon. Consumes it. It's gone. Gideon perceived that he was an angel of the Lord. He said, Alas, O God, because I have seen an angel of the Lord face to face. The Lord said unto him, Peace be unto thee, fear not, thou shalt not die. Gideon built an altar there unto the Lord. So, after this takes place, Gideon is encouraged. He is bold. The first thing that Gideon goes and does is he goes and he destroys the altars of Baal. I want you to notice when he destroys the altar of Baal, Gideon took ten men of his servants and did as the Lord had said unto him, And so it was, because he feared his father's household and the men of the city. He could not do it by day, but he did it by night. He goes and he cuts down the groves, verse 25. He destroys the altar to Baal, a false god. But even when he does that, he does it by night. Now, my dad is the toughest, biggest, meanest, baddest man that has walked the course of this world in the 20th and 21st century. And I say that without any degree of irony or uncertainty. There, there are sermons by former police officers turned preachers about him of cop stories. And if you listen to the stories, you're like, this man is Terminator. He's absolutely unbeatable. Everyone, including his co-workers, were afraid of him because he was a tough guy. If dad tore down the altar of Baal and the groves, he wouldn't do it in the middle of the night. He'd go out there in the middle of the day, he'd look them in the eye, he'd burn it down, he would threaten them and dare them to defy him and his God, because he's not afraid of anything but his God. Gideon, on the other hand, he does this by night. Now, some of us might be more inclined to do that by night. It's covert. We get it done when they can't challenge us because we're afraid. Gideon is afraid. He obeys God, but he's still struggling with fear, and he does it by night. The story of Gideon continues. God has raised him up. He's going to send him to deliver from the Midianites and the Amalekites. By the way, the the casting down of those altars resulted in Gideon being given a new name. Jerob Baal, Jerob Baal, they called him that because he had torn down those altars. And when his father saw that, they began to complain about Gideon. His father says, well, if Baal's a god, let him go plead for himself. If he's really a god, why are you taking up for him? And so that word, this new name, Jerob Baal, means let Baal plead. Let him go plead. So that, they called this man that from that time on. Gideon still struggles with fear and uncertainty and unbelief. Verse 36, Gideon said unto God, If thou wilt save Israel by my hand as thou hast said, behold, I will put a fleece of wool in the floor. I'm going to leave it here overnight. If the dew be on the fleece only, and it be dry upon all the earth beside, then shall I know that thou wilt save Israel by my hand, as thou hast said. 
He's giving him unlikely scenarios to try to get out of it. Because he's afraid. And so it was when he rose up early in the morning, he thrust the fleece together and wringed the dew out of the fleece, a bowl full of water. So he takes his bowl and he pulls, he begins to wring the fleece and it's just so full of water that it could fill a bowl and the ground all around the fleece is dry. Gideon says unto God, now you'd think, okay, I got my sign, two of them so far. Oh God, let not thine anger be hot against me, and I will speak this once. Let me prove, I pray thee, but this once with the fleece, let it now be dry only upon the fleece, and upon all the ground let there be dew. In this case, Lord, let me reverse it. He's still struggling. God did so that night, for it was dry upon the fleece only, and there was dew on all the ground. All right, Gideon. You got your answer. Three signs asked, three signs given. God is going to use you to save Israel out of the hand of Midian and Amalek. Let's go into the battle. God does things in a certain way so many times, especially in the Old Testament, that there would be no doubt as to the fact that God is delivering. You look through church history and you see this over and over again. You think about the early centuries of the church, all the persecution, how they burned Christians at the stake, they fed them to lions, they stoned them in the streets, they crucified them, they beheaded them, they imprisoned them, they starved them to death. If this were anything other than a movement of God himself, it wouldn't have lasted the first 50 years. And yet here we are 2,000 years later, sharing out of the book that has been attacked more than any other book in the history of the world, and yet there are more copies of this book than any other book in existence. You can literally download it on your iPhone or pick one up from Dollar Tree for a dollar. Because God, because God... They gathered a war. But God says, the people that are with thee are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hands. You have too many soldiers. Since I'm home. The people that are with me are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hands, lest Israel vaunt themselves against me, saying, mine own hand has saved me. If Israel were to go with all the people gathered together there, they could say, well, we're just so mighty. We went and we whipped these Midianites and we did this by our own might. And so God says, send them home. Send home, in fact, whoever is fearful and afraid, let him return and depart early from Mount Gilead. And there returned of the people 20 and 2,000 and there remain 10,000. You, you have to expect Gideon to disappear right there, right? If you're afraid, go home. Where'd Gideon go? He, maybe he's asking for the fourth sign. Now, he had learned some things by now. God says 10,000 is, is too much. The Lord said unto Gideon, The people are yet too many. Bring them down to the water, and I will try them for thee there. 
And it shall be that of whom I say unto thee, this shall go with thee, the same shall go with thee. And whomsoever I say unto thee, this shall not go with thee, the same shall not go with thee. And he brought them down to this water. God says, Everyone that lappeth of the water with his tongue as a dog lappeth, him shall thou set by himself. Likewise, everyone that boweth down upon his knees to drink. In other words, if they lap water like a dog, put them over here. If they bow down on their knees, put them over there. If you want to read interesting thoughts, see how different theologians have interpreted that statement throughout biblical history. Laps water like a dog with his tongue versus bowing himself down on his knees. What does this mean? Give you a few ideas. Some of the Egyptian dogs were so conscious of their surroundings that one would drink while another watched, and they would take turns drinking to watch for enemies. That's one idea. Another idea is that these men, instead of bowing themselves down, they would scoop it in their hand and they would lap it up with their tongue out of their hand. But it doesn't explicitly mention that. How I see that, if you have a dog and it is a wild dog and it is in the middle of the wilderness where there are predators or challengers, when it drinks, instead of looking down at the water, its eyes are scanning. It's not just sticking its head in the water oblivious to the surrounding, but it drinks and it's looking instead of bowing itself like this. When you bow, your head's facing down. Either way, God seems to be eliminating all but the most cunning that were there. I've actually got some commentaries that skip that verse. They're just like, I don't even know. I'm not even going to give you an opinion. But more than likely, in my mind, because a dog goes all the way to the water, but a dog is conscious as he drinks. I think that's the point. It's my understanding of that. There ended up being 300 men. 300. But 300 men. To give you the final story of that, they divide this 300 into threes. They give all of them a trumpet. They take these cisterns, these pots, and these men surround them in three different positions, break the pots, sound the trumpets, begin screaming and praising God. Chaos ensues, and at the end of all of this, Israel has the victory. You can read verses 15 through 25 of chapter 7, because it's now time. We'll leave that for you to read on your own this week. God gave the victory. Now, I want to give you just a few takeaways from this because we want to apply this. And we even want to point it to Christ. Point number one is we take some thoughts away from this unlikely hero story, Gideon. And this has been throughout everything I've said today. Before there is restoration, there has to be repentance. Over and over and over in these judges' Stories and the stories of these judges, before God delivers them out of bondage, the people cry out to God and they turn, and God sends a judge to tear down all the groves. They repent from their idolatry, and God restores them. Number two, the victory is based on God's strength, 
not on our strength, our bravery, or our numbers. The strength is God's. The victory is God's. How might this point to Christ? With man, it is impossible, but not with God. With God, all things are possible. We see that the story of salvation is one not based upon our strength or our numbers, our cunningness. These men are led by a troubled, trembling judge named Gideon who does all he can to get out of it because he's uncertain. Number three, God is so much greater than our insecurities or our fears. I want everybody in the room to hear that. God is greater than your insecurities. You young mamas, is there any more insecure of a person in the world so many times than a young mother? God is greater than the insecurities you have. Men, God is greater than the fears that you have. John talks about if our heart condemn us, God is greater than our heart. God is greater than our insecurities. Gideon was so very fearful, but God overcame that and used him to obtain a victory. And lastly, some thoughts that we can take away from this lesson today. Let's turn over to the New Testament to Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 32. What's Hebrews 11? We call it the honor roll of faith. Now, if you were just reading the life of Gideon, would you think to place Gideon in the honor roll of faith? Give me a sign. Here's your sign. The food blazes up from fire from a rock. Lord, I want another sign. The fleece is wet. The ground is dry. Lord, don't be angry. I want a third sign. The fleece is dry and the earth is wet. You wouldn't think this uncertain man who tears down the groves and the altar of Baal by night for fear, a man who's threshing and hiding it from Midianites out of fear, you wouldn't think that this man would be listed in the honor roll of faith, would you? He gets an honorable mention. As the writer of Hebrews begin to sum up, begins to sum up all of the victories accomplished by faith, Christ in you, the hope of glory, he says in verse 32, What shall I more say? For the time would fail me to tell of Gideon or Barak or Samson. You know those are three judges? Time would fail me to tell of these men, but did you notice the first person that he mentions there in those that he could talk about to give great victories through faith is Gideon? What's a point that we can derive from that? As imperfect as his faith might have been, it was real, it was victorious, it enabled him to lead and to deliver despite the fact that he struggled with unbelief. Don't you think so many times, Lord, I believe, help thou my unbelief? So did Gideon. And here he is in Hebrews chapter 11, listed among Abraham and Jacob, Abel, Enoch, Moses, Rahab, and even men such as Samson and David. Gideon's faith many times, was shaken in his own abilities. He knew he couldn't do anything of himself. He was afraid. He was concerned. He was fearful. And so are all of us.
And yet it didn't make it any less faith. It didn't make him any less victorious in what God had called him to do. And so as we read the story of Gideon, what I want you to do is take heart, be encouraged, and be comforted. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the story of Gideon. We feel ourselves to be so much like him. We know there are things in the world you've called us to do, and yet at the same time, we're so many times afraid, afraid of what other people will say, afraid of what others will do, afraid that your enemies will come at us with one thing or another. But Lord, we know that you, if you call us to do something, well, you'll give us strength to do it. You've given us the faith to do it. And even when that faith is imperfect, Lord, we believe, help our unbelief. Thank you, Lord, again for this great example. We pray that you forgive us of our sins, the sin that so often does so easily beset us, the sin of unbelief. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.